Welcome to the Splinters Podcast from the team on the bench. Community Radio's leading no-holds-barred Friday night sports show. Available online and replayed on Triple H 100.1 FM. Now, here's your host, the Sultan, Tony Dosen. Yes, welcome to Splinters on a Tuesday night on Triple H 100.1 FM and also on the web at www.triplehfm.com.au and shortly afterwards at podcasts.com and wherever else you pick up your podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Twitter, all the good places and maybe some of the bad places as well like Mears Cast. I have never discovered Mears Cast. I will find it one day. On this episode of Splinters, time to look back at the National Rugby League season that was, a season that almost stopped before it started or started before it stopped, but eventually came to a conclusion with the Melbourne Storm winning another premiership. Oh, the eagle has landed. Melbourne have won it. Challenges. Melbourne have won it. They certainly did on that last Sunday night in October. For the next hour or so, we're going to dissect all 16 National Rugby League teams in the season that was, and to do so, well, who else could we ask on Splinters but the best non-paid rugby league analyst in the country? I speak of Keith Topolsky, and he joins Splinters once again right now. Hello again, Keith. Good evening, Tony. Good evening to everyone listening across the Triple H Global Network Uh Unfortunately, the Premiership is done. We might have a couple of other rugby league games coming up in the not-too-distant future, but club competition, uh, yeah, it's done, finally. Finally, we got there. At some point at uh, mid-March, when the coronavirus curtain came down upon us all, there was a real chance that we would never have got that far. There was a very real chance, but when you look at the track record of Peter Volandi's I'm not uh, surprised in the slightest that he was the one leading the way, particularly when certain other individuals, and we won't name names because we won't give them the pleasure, but certainly from other sports, were declaring him irresponsible and then they were following his lead just a matter of weeks later. It was obvious that Peter Volandis was the driving force, not just behind getting rugby league back, but I think getting sport back. And I think no matter what the sport or no matter which state you're from, uh, you owe Peter Volandis a debt of gratitude because he was the one that led the way really fighting for some sort of normality when everybody else was locked up at home, being able to, well, at a bare minimum, sit at home and watch the footy. That was a start to try and get back to something resembling regular scheduling. Well, how important was that for the psyche of people? I heard other codes mention this at length when they came to the end of their seasons that... It was so important to provide something for people locked up in COVID lockdown for long periods, something to look forward to every week or even every night. Well, that's exactly right. And even here uh, in Port Lincoln, where I I suppose the best way to describe Port Lincoln for the purposes of this particular podcast would be uh, the land that rugby league forgot almost or or never found, Uh, even people in Port Lincoln were coming up to me in the street and saying, oh, you're the, you're the guy from 5CC, you're that rugby guy, aren't you? Despite the fact I had to correct them about the rugby codes, but be that as it may. And even then they were taking an interest in it because there was, that was the only show in town for a fortnight. And there was, there was a market there, and I think that's what probably pushed, uh, as you say, the other code to get back as quickly because 
they knew immediately that rugby league was making ground because you're quite right, it was a case of not only the only game in town, but for those rusted on them, it was a case of this is some sort of normal in a time when there is anything but normal. Indeed, and it was interesting to note that some of those other codes were very quick to trumpet their triumphs over rugby league as far as television ratings were concerned at the back end of the season. But that's for another podcast. That's for another day. Let's have a look at the NRL. We just heard a small clip of the Melbourne Storm winning the grand final over a Gallant Penrith Panthers not so long ago at the Olympic Stadium. And whether you like them or whether you hate them, whether you admire them, whether you don't like the way they perhaps cynically push the envelope when it comes to bending the rules to breaking point, you have to acknowledge them as certainly they were the, the club team of the decade of the 2010s, just or alongside the Sydney Roosters. They've started the 2020s in no uncertain fashion to be the club of this decade as well. Yes, there's no doubt about that. And what really uh, impressed me about the way Melbourne performed uh, throughout the season was the way in which, even if they had a down game or a down performance, they'd come back and they would improve out of sight in the next one and they would rectify every problem they had, even if it was a little challenge here or there for them to be able to keep the pace. There's no question that they were probably the second most consistent team during the season and that was reflected in the standings. But when push came to shove, it really was quite impressive the way they were able to stand up and withstand the pressure when push came to shove as opposed to the team that finished on top of the ladder who crumbled when the pressure was truly applied in what I think, and I can't believe how many, how few people have picked up on this, a very eerie resemblance to the year 2001 when the team with arguably the world's greatest player, arguably the greatest of all time, finished second to a team from Western Sydney that were runaway minor premiers with a whole bunch of young kids seemingly destined for greatness and the team with the experienced leader, the legend, who had that ability to be able to control that mentality in the team and make sure that they just put their head down, got the job done, ran out and just carved them up in the first half of the grand final and just rode that to a win. Well, the 2001 similarities certainly overrode the 2003 similarities, which we'll talk about shortly. Uh, so where does Melbourne go as the defending premiers? They will be the hunted. They seem to revel in that uh, uh, position when we start the next 2021 season in a, a few months' time. Uh, do they really need to rely so much on Cameron Smith? 430 games down the track into his NRL career uh, as this program of Splinters went to air, when this episode was being put together, there was still no announcement on Cameron Smith's future. Well, I don't know whether they have to rely on him because I think they've got their number nine of the future already on the books if they're smart about it. But what really concerns me isn't necessarily the speculation over Cameron Smith and his retirement, but it's speculation that Melbourne may not have a firm idea over who exactly would be their number nine of choice should Brandon, uh, should Cameron Smith sorry, retire. There's a lot of talk at the moment that Brandon Smith could be the man chosen, and I think that would be an absolutely horrendous mistake. Not because Brandon Smith is a bad player. He's a wonderful player. He's a wonderful lock forward. He's a much better lock forward than he is a number nine because he doesn't have that organisational game and that thinking game that Harry Grant does. So 
I think the bigger question for Melbourne isn't will Cameron Smith go again? It's a question of if Cameron Smith retires, who are you going to replace him with? And if Cameron Smith um, retires and they go with his namesake, then I think they will have made a terrible, terrible error. And they have to make clear now that, okay, if Cameron Smith wants to go around again, then that's his decision. But if Cameron Smith packs it in, then Harry Grant is going to take over the number nine. And if they don't make that decision, then I think they're in for a pretty bumpy ride in the next decade or so. Well, Harry Grant, by all reports, wants to play first grade, but we're going to come to that a little bit later. Um, they, the other question for mine for Melbourne is not so much Cameron Smith, but of Craig Bellamy, the man who put this system together, the man who built the empire, uh, the man who uh, has been the focus front and centre for the last 17 years uh, south of the Murray, uh, and his future He's 62 years of age. He's not a young man anymore. Coaching is increasingly becoming a younger man's game, despite the efforts of a couple of uh, notable exceptions. So uh, the clear choice that Melbourne may have is the succession plan to Craig Bellamy, if and when he decides to leave. I think they've got a few options there. I think Jason Riles could take over. I think Craig Bellamy's son is being groomed as a possible successor. I think even though Jason Riles is going away for 12 months to work with Eddie Jones in the England Rugby Union setup, I think he's a viable option. I think I think Melbourne have no shortage of successes for Craig Bellamy, who would do a suitable job because they understand the setup, they understand Craig Bellamy's mindset, they understand what breeds success in Melbourne. And Melbourne's a unique market as well. A lot of people probably don't, don't necessarily ignore, but don't appreciate the sort of environment that the Melbourne Storm work in, where they are pretty much not persona non grata, but you would struggle to pick a lot of the guys out of a lineup down there in, um, as you said, south of the Murray. I was going to use a, a less uh, complimentary term, but I won't go there. Um, but the, the fact that they live such um, nondescript lives down there and people aren't obsessed because every, every page of every newspaper of every day is just AFL wall-to-wall. So I think that's got a lot to do with it as well, being able to instill that discipline. And that's something that, especially this year, one team in particular found was a bit of a problem, and we'll get to them right down the back end of uh, this episode. But I think that's something that needs to be considered as well. So I don't know whether the coaching succession plan is as important as trying to figure out who comes after Cameron Smith, regardless of whether he goes on next year or not. So uh, they will start favourites or very close to favourites for the 2021 flag. Uh, And you would have to say that those that are waiting for the demise of the Empire may have to wait a little bit longer. Let's have a look at the team they beat in the grand final. Uh, The Penrith Panthers playing their first grand final in 17 years. They now have a record of uh, 50% in grand finals. Played 4-1-2, lost 2 The 17 successive wins heading into the grand final was outstanding. They produced a number of the game's best players during the season. But I got the impression that they were cruising for a bruising during the final series. They weren't at their best. They were scrambling to to wins. They were playing in patches. And that sort of scrambling form with 20 minutes here and 20 minutes there was never going to be enough against the professionalism of the Melbourne Storm in the grand final. And that's how it turned out. Well, that's exactly the problem that was being spotted by a lot of people in the lead-in to the grand final was, excuse me, even though the Penrith Panthers were winning these games and 
everybody's saying, yeah, the Panthers are winning and they're, they're going to win the grand final as a result of this. Well, okay, they might have been winning and you can only beat what's in front of you. That That's true. But the way they were winning was extremely unimpressive. And all, all things being equal, they were extremely lucky to beat the Roosters. If Jared Sutton does not call Boyd Cordner um, for an obstruction which was overturned by the bunker on a Roosters challenge, then I think the Roosters score and they win that game. And then all of a sudden Penrith are thrown into a sudden-death elimination game and they, they got lucky against South because you know, they, were, they were able to eke out something when maybe some of those players that should have known better for South didn't quite stand up at the appropriate time. So there was always that indicator that Penrith, not only did they not beat anyone of particular note in that back end of the run, um, with all due respect to some teams, but certainly the top end of town, uh, as far as the teams they were coming up against, Parramatta were absolutely deplorable by the time Penrith got to them. They only faced Melbourne once. They faced Canberra earlier in the in the season before Canberra really started hitting their stride. They only faced the Roosters in, I think it was round one, uh, before things uh, took off and uh, completely changed. So they didn't really come up against anyone that really tested them in that back end of the season. And when they ran into the Melbourne Storm, when Melbourne were in their best form, in true Melbourne form, I had no doubt in the world that Melbourne were going to win. Whether they were going to take their foot off the pedal like they did remain to be seen, but certainly I had no doubt that Melbourne were going to win because they were a young team, Penrith. They didn't know how to handle the pressure. And the question really becomes now, do they learn from this or do they turn around and do what Parramatta did in 2001 and really implode off the back of it? Ivan Cleary is not Brian Smith. Ivan Cleary is a lot of things. Many of them words I won't say on a family podcast. But I don't think he's Brian Smith in terms of his temperament. So I think Penrith have a better chance to fulfil their potential. But the way they imploded in that grand final, that will leave a lot of mental scars. Well, they do lose James Tamo to the West Tigers and Caleb Aikens at this stage to Canberra. Tyrone May, the controversial selection in the grand final at centre, yet to be re-signed, but the bail is that he will re-sign. How much of a loss of Tamo do you think it will be to that pack? You can't underestimate the loss of the experience. Certainly at this stage of his career, he's not the player that he was. If you're looking for a guy to be a real meter-eater, then James Tamo is not the sort of guy you're signing. But for West Tigers, a lot of people have panned the signing of James Tamo. I'm not impressed with it, but not for the same reason that other people are. A lot of people are unimpressed because he's not the sort of dynamic young player that you need uh, coming through the system and all that sort of thing. I'm not necessarily a fan of the signing of James Tamo, not because he's not one of those dynamic young players. I understand Michael Maguire in trying to sign him, but what James Tamo brings is a workmanlike approach trying to instill some sort of professionalism. Michael Maguire's already got that in and of himself. I think the problem that James Tamo's loss will have for the Panthers will be that he doesn't have that they they don't have that workmanlike approach there anymore. And all of a sudden, well, no James Tamo, who's your natural forward pack leader? You don't have Regan Campbell Gillard anymore. You're going to turn to Isaiah Yo. I don't think he's ready to step up yet. Happy Coruscant, I'm not sold on him being leadership material. Viliami Kickout? But Viliami Kickout, he's certainly not leadership material given the, the temperament that he showed at certain times during the season when baited. So I, 
I don't know who your forward leader is. And when you don't have a clear, unequivocal forward leader, that's when you start being exposed around those edges. And I think that's what Penrith could be in for a bit of a problem with next season. Also, in late breaking news, when this episode of Splinters went to air, Josh Mansour was told uh, that he would not be playing first grade at Penrith if he stayed at the club next year and that he was free to look elsewhere. Another chunk of experience gone from their back line. Let's have a look at the two preliminary finalists that didn't make the big one, that got to within one match of the decider, starting with the team that went down to the Premiers uh, in that early blitzkrieg, the Canberra Raiders. And uh, look, on face value, perhaps disappointing for the team that a lot of people, myself included, expected to go one step further than what they did in 2019. But their season of fits and starts eventually caught up with them when it got to the back end, having to come from the bottom half of the top eight. It's not just having to come from the bottom half of the top eight. They had to do it without Josh Hodgson. It, it absolutely amazed me the way Canberra was able to develop a game plan to be able to build without Josh Hodgson and be able to implement that and win so many games on their way to a final series. I thought they were incredibly lucky not to finish top four. And the way that they rolled through the Roosters was professional. It was most impressive. I, I cannot begin to imagine what would have gone through Ricky Stewart's head watching the first 20 minutes of that preliminary final against the Melbourne Storm because that was the most, <clears throat> excuse me, the most un-Canberra-like performance of the season and they saved up their worst performance for their biggest game, sort of like what Canterbury did in 1994 when the Raiders played them in the grand final. That was their big moment to shine and they completely lost it. Pretty much what Penrith did the following week in the grand final. So I think Ricky Stewart would be most disappointed with the way the game ended up finishing for the Raiders. They deserved a lot more than that. But when you put things into perspective, I I know it's easy to look at it now and say, oh, well, you didn't have Josh Hodgson. You did well to get to where you were, and you should be proud of that. But given that they came so far and improved so much, to basically wet their pants in the biggest game of the year, I think they would be absolutely filthy about that, regardless of whether the the third-slash-fourth-place finish was an achievement, given they were missing their main playmaker. Well, they do lose Josh Bateman back home, eventually, uh, to uh, the English Super League, and they've lost Nick Kotrick to the Bulldogs. But they have re-signed Tom Starling, and Sylvia Harvilli does have a one-year option, which will probably be exercised, given the injury problems that Josh Hodgson has. You would expect them to be there and thereabouts again in 2021, certainly top eight, probably top four. I I would be enthralled to see exactly what they decide to do as far as replacing that role that John Bateman played in terms of that edge running back rower because he very much reminded me of what Gareth Ellis did for the West Tigers back in the early uh, 2010s, the early teens. That edge running, just knowing the angle to run at the most possible at the best possible time, I just wonder exactly how they're going to replace that because that is not something that is easily taught to a back rower, being able to run those angles uh, and run those lines and pick the times to run those lines. If they can find someone who can run those lines at that speed with that strength, a la John Bateman, I, I think they can do it whether they lose Josh Hodgson for a period next year or not because they've learned how to play without Hodgson. And I think Starling is probably the more useful um, recruit or retention, I should say, over Haveli because I think Josh Starling is the more dynamic option. And if they can do that, if they can find a replacement for Bateman and keep Hodgson 
on the field for most of the season, then I think they are definitely the team to beat next season. And even if Josh Hodgson does go down at any point next season, I still think now they have learned from that to make themselves a real danger. Let's have a look at the other preliminary finalists that went down to the runners-up in their grand final qualifier. The South Sydney Rabbitohs, who came from the bottom half also of the top eight, but found Penrith just that little bit too good. Uh, Alex Johnston has been re-signed after scoring all of his tries in that avalanche of attack that South's unleashed at the back end of the season. Bailey Sirinan and Stephen Masters have also signed. And another late-breaking development, though, as this episode of Splinters was going to wear, James Roberts has been given uh, personal leave exemption to leave the South Sydney Rabbitohs, and his future is very much clouded. Yeah, James Roberts, <clears throat> he was desperate to get out of Sydney for a while, not because he hated South Sydney, but because Sydney, because of his history, shall we say, is just not good for him from a mental point of view. South Sydney pretty much rode their luck, I think, not because they were a very bad team, but when you look at the draw they had going into the finals, they had Newcastle, which was a lay-down Mazaire if they decided to turn up, and after 15 minutes they did. They got Parramatta after Parramatta imploded in the back end of the season, and they did exactly what they were expected to of them. Penrith was the only genuine test, and they went oh so close. Now, So even now, I don't know whether that's more an indication of how soft Penrith were at the back end or of how close South Sydney were, or whether it was just, um, I suppose, uh, deceptively close to South Sydney got, given how far away Penrith ended up being at the same time as well. But it does say something that South Sydney was sitting back and they found that little niche in the draw, and then they just ran roughshod over it in the back end of the season. So South Sydney, I don't think they were ever really in it, but at the same time, they can consider themselves unlucky. They didn't get to a grand final at the same time, which I think says a lot for the luck of the draw. If you landed in one particular position in the standing, then all of a sudden you had this golden opportunity to go through, even though you were probably not one of the better teams, simply because everybody else lucked out to be in a different position. Well, they still will rely on Cody Walker and Adam Reynolds in the halves to steer them around and get that back line clicking a bit more consistently next year to perhaps try and finish into the top four. One thing we did work out is that you have to finish in that top four to make the grand final and to win it. It's almost near impossible to come from the bottom half of the eight. I think the more important factor to remember is you have to win in week one as one of the teams that finish in the top four. If you win week one in the top four, you are almost guaranteed to go through to the grand final because the other team that you will be playing will be so spent after the big game the week before, that they're not going to have enough to turn up. This isn't the AFL where you get a bye week, and I know that there are plenty of people uh, who are filthy on the AFL for having that bye week. Uh, Terry Wallace, uh, Western Bulldogs, Richmond former coach, is one of the most vocal opponents of having that bye week because it takes away that natural built-in advantage of finishing top four, then getting the week off, because then you have a second week off, and all of a sudden that removes the benefit of getting that second week off because then you go in underdone with one game in a month, sort of like what happened in the old top five system. You finish minor premiers, you get a week off, then you win and you get another week off and all of a sudden, well, you're behind the eight ball against a team that may not have got the week off. So that remains to be seen there as well, whether there will be a team that can manage to lose in week one 
and then come back because it's been, I think it might almost be 15 years since two teams that didn't get the week off uh, after week one have gone through to make the grand final. They, and that was two very young teams uh, coming up against teams that probably had a bit more veteran presence. West Tigers in North Queensland over Parramatta and St George or Warra that year. Speaking of Parramatta, we go to the teams that were eliminated in week two of the finals before we take our break and rush through the other ten teams in the second half of this episode. And we start with the Sydney Roosters. They were the two-time double-defending premiers and eventually they found just how hard it was to make it a three-peat. They threatened to do so at various stages in the season, but their form tapered off badly at the back end and during the finals. And they have uh, lost or got rid of or are expunging a number of players from their squad. Kyle Flanagan has gone to the Bulldogs. Pawasa Farmasuili has gone. Josh and Brett Morris will probably stay. We certainly have seen the last of Ryan Hall, who didn't flatter a lot in the Roosters' system. And we probably have seen the last of Sonny Bill Williams, given that the English clubs have voted not to bring the Toronto Wolfpack back into the English Super League. There's a lot to unpack there. The first thing I want to mention is Kyle Flanagan. I can't believe that the Roosters screwed up as badly as they did by telling Kyle Flanagan that he wasn't needed next year. I can only assume that it's got something to do with his personality, not gelling within the Roosters' culture or their setup. because what he did to almost drag the Roosters through a few games this season was nothing short of extraordinary. And the performance he put in in that last final game against Canberra before they lost, carrying that injury was just absolutely incredible for the courage that he showed. So there is something there that we don't know about why Kyle Flanagan has been let go by the Roosters. I think it's a deplorable decision from them unless they are hiding something from us and Kyle Flanagan is hiding something from us. Ryan Hall was never going to work out. I could not believe it when the Roosters signed Ryan Hall. I thought all the other clubs would be laughing all the way to the bank, but Fortunately for the Roosters, they got him on the cheap. And, well, he you pay peanuts, you get monkeys, and that's pretty much what you got with Ryan Hall was an absolute clown show, uh, not being able to do anything, and that didn't surprise me at all. On the other side of the coin, yes, it's very difficult to go back-to-back, let alone a three-peat. And I think the Roosters did everything they could physically to will themselves to getting there. But even with that break-off fall, uh, the pandemic, when the season stopped earlier this year, it was just too much for them physically. It takes a big toll playing that much football to that high standard, and I think it just caught up with them in the end. I wouldn't be surprised if they came back and did much better next season and really stood up and made a grand final on the back of having that little bit of a benefit to be able to unwind and not worry about anything. There won't be any rep football after Origin, so that probably gives them a little bit more time to reboot as well they will definitely be there next year as a genuine contender. What about the other side that were eliminated in week two of the finals that started the season so well but seemed to run out of gas from about mid-July onwards? The Parramatta Eels, who finished in the top four and were bounced out in straight sets like the Roosters were. To me, they seem to be the most fittest side in the competition, which is how they won a lot of their games in the first half of the season, but when everybody else's fitness caught up, post-pandemic, they were found wanting. I don't even know whether it was the fitness catching up. I think they just put so much energy into coming out of the blocks, and the other teams just decided, you know what, we're going to pace ourselves like a normal season. We're not going to come out of the blocks and try and kill ourselves 
to win games early on, and that's what Parramatta did. They looked very impressive early on, and they ran roughshod over all the other forward packs. There was no way known in any sort of basic universal understanding of human physiology that they were going to be able to keep that pace up. It just wasn't possible. I think that they probably underestimated what the six again rule was going to do. I think it had a major benefit for Parramatta early with that sort of high-energy play. But then to try and keep that up, it wasn't feasible, and that's when it caught up with them. And even from mid-July, I was telling anybody who would listen, and I told you more than a few times that Parramatta, their moment of reckoning is coming. It's just a matter of when it came. And once you got to about mid-August, that was when everybody else started to cotton on, or hang on a minute, Parramatta's got a few problems here, something that I've been picking probably since about mid to late June. And they have reacted. Brad Arthur, the coach, has reacted savagely post-season. The broom has come out. Andrew Davey, Reese Davies, Jay Field, David Gower, Jamin Salmon, Brad Takarangi and Penny Taripo have all been shown the door. Yes, a lot of them were fringe players, maybe of any New South Wales Cup standard. But certainly Brad Arthur wants to move on and move on quickly. He certainly is. There's a few guys in there that I don't see why they signed in the first place. There's a few guys in there who I think would be absolutely outstanding pickups for any other club. I think Brad Arthur overplayed his hand on that situation with getting rid of some of those guys, and I think it's a waste of talent on his part. But he's the coach, and if he thinks he can deliver without those guys, then, okay, good luck to him. But I think that he's probably done the wrong thing by a couple of them, specifically, or particularly, I should say, rather than specifically, Jamin Salmon, I think, is a player with a lot of potential, and I think going to Parramatta uh, was probably one of the worst moves of his career. If he can get a part-time contract somewhere, then I think he can be a reclamation project for any club that really wants to put some decent time and effort into it. And finally, when it comes to Parramatta, it's a year of reckoning for Mitchell Moses next year, isn't it? It is, and I think that the temperamental issues that he had at West Tigers really came to the fore this season. It didn't matter what the decision was. If it was a decision that went against Parramatta, then he was immediately amongst the first to whinge and complain about it. People might laugh and think of me as a hypocrite for pointing that out because of the treatment that we give the referees on on occasion and some of the ungracious things I have to say to the referees. But the way that you could see that it clearly got under Mitchell Moses' skin, as opposed to Clint Gutherson, who was just as vocal with the referees and just as annoying as an opposition fan. But you could tell that he was trying to play the game Cameron Smith style, as opposed to Mitchell Moses, who was just losing his mind. He has to work on his mentality. Otherwise, he'll just be a complete waste of a talent. And I think that's what was starting to unfold at West Tigers. And I think that's what Parramatta will find themselves with next season. All right. That's why we have you on board as the best unpaid analyst of the game in the country. It's half-time on this episode of Splinters. Plenty to get through in the second half. Ten more teams with a look towards next year as this NRL Review episode of Splinters continues. As the coronavirus outbreak continues, it's important to stay well-informed. A national plan has been activated to manage the virus and support our community. As more is learned about the virus and the way it spreads... The plan will be adapted and we will let you know about the latest advice. For up-to-date information, visit health.gov.au. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra.
Welcome back to Splitters on a Tuesday night on Triple H 100.1 FM and on the web at www.triplehfm.com.au and afterwards at podcast.com. Wherever you pick up your podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, Mears Cast. Still don't know about Mears Cast. I think it's a myth, but anyway, that's another story. Joining me again to look at the uh, National Rugby League season in review is the best unpaid analyst of the game, Keith Topolsky. Let's get stuck straight back down to business and we look at the two teams that were bundled out in week one of the finals and, frankly, two teams I thought that purely made up the numbers in this year's final series, starting with the seventh-placed Newcastle Knights, who were so good at home but so awful on the road. They really were the regular scheduling New Zealand Warriors of the season. Great at home, terrible on the road, looked like they had an attitude problem. Talon Ponga really needs his head in the right spot next season. Otherwise, I think they're going to struggle again. I don't know why they're going around targeting Mitchell Pearce. Mitchell Pearce did everything he could this season. Mitchell Pearce is not an origin player. I've made that clear in my summations before. What he did for the Knights this season was absolutely incredible, and he deserves none of the blame. I think Kalen Ponga needs to step up next season. Otherwise, it's going to be another season of missed opportunity for Newcastle when they really should be taking really big steps forward after that lengthy rebuild under Nathan Brown. Connor Watson has been re-signed. Herman SASA is off to the improving Gold Coast Titans. Aidan Guerra has retired. Mason Lenor is one of those that have not been re-signed alongside Tau Tau Moga. I think they also need some lifting mentally right across the park, away from home. There are a couple of sides that I think could be improvers and bolters to make the eight next year that might put up a bit more of a show than what uh, Newcastle did. But they need to take their home form uh, on the road as soon as possible, ASAP. We then look at the team that finished eighth and got bounced out in week one uh, of the finals as well. A side that finished eighth probably because they were better than all of the rest in the Cronulla Sutherland Sharks. And it's hard to know what to make of Cronulla's season. I think the easiest way to describe it is that they weren't necessarily one of the eight best teams in the competition. I think they were the least worst of the nine worst teams in the competition was probably the best way to describe it. Because if you want a team that was truly making up the numbers in the finals, Cronulla was it. I know they don't have the cattle that they had in years past, but certainly they need to be able to produce something better than what they did with those players. And there are people running around saying, John Morris did a magnificent job with that team. Well, John Morris should have had them playing more consistent football. And I wouldn't say that John Morris um, is being treated I wouldn't say he's being treated fairly by having the speculation that he might disappear once Shane Flanagan's suspension is up. But I wouldn't say that it's completely unfair to suggest that with the roster they've got, okay, it's not a premiership roster, but that they should be a comfortable top eight team with what they've got at their disposal, the Sharks. Certainly they need more from Wade Graham, who had a horror run of injuries this season, although perhaps his talents are starting to dull with age. Toby Rudolph has re-signed with Cronulla for next season, despite some interest from elsewhere. Sione Katoa, Will Kennedy and Royce Hunt have also all re-signed. Bryson Goodwin has a one-year mutual option, which by uh, all reports will probably be uh, exercised in his favour. So I would expect that with pretty much the same side, 
they may finish somewhere about the same again next year. If, if they can play to a higher standard, then I think where they finish might be fair enough. I think it's the standard they're playing to, and what that's what disappointed this season. So I think Cronulla have to step it up next season as far as the quality of their football. If they finish eighth again, based on what I think some other teams might be able to produce next season, then I think that would be a fair and reasonable performance. But it depends on the standard they play to rather than um, exactly where they finish. Well, let's have a look at some of those sides uh, that could improve uh, as we look at the teams that finished outside the eight and some distance outside the eight. Let's not forget that the team that finished ninth and tenth were a good one and two wins outside of the eight and couldn't make the eight as early as two weeks from the finals. But there are some green shoot stories there, starting with the team that did finish ninth, their highest placed finish in some time in the Gold Coast Titans. Five wins on the bounce to finish the 2020 season for new coach uh, Justin Holbrook and with some signings of David Fafita, Herman SASA and perhaps Ash Taylor about to unleash his potential. Mal Meninga is there and thereabouts uh, in the back office of the Titans. Maybe, just maybe, uh, they can march into the eight and certainly they will finish as the best Queensland-based NRL team next year. My question, Mark, is whether Ash Taylor can do it again. I think Jamal Fogarty uh, has probably proven himself this season as deserving of the status of the dominant half with the Gold Coast Titans, such was the way he played such high-quality football during the season while Ash Taylor was still finding his feet. My big question, Mark, over the Gold Coast Titans is at number nine. If they have Tanner Boyd in there as their number nine, I think they finish somewhere around that six, seven, eight position. The Gold Coast need to keep an eye on what's happening in Melbourne because if Cameron Smith decides to retire, then Harry Grant versus Brandon Smith for that number nine, Gold Coast should be making a big play for whoever misses out because Brandon Smith, he's not the Harry Grant, Cameron Smith type, but he's still a really good number nine who can provide good service. That could make them a fringe top four candidate. If they end up with Harry Grant, I think that catapults them into the top four as would be the case if they signed Cameron Smith if he decided to play on but ended up leaving the Melbourne Storm. If they can get a really good number nine, they're a top four team next they're a top four contender next year the Gold Coast. If they can't get a good quality number nine, then they're finalists somewhere in that five to eight bracket. Well it's certainly a shame that Justin Holbrook's coaching pedigree, which was questioned when he came here, he was out of sight and out of mind, but We've seen it with others who have gone to England and cut their teeth in the Super League at the, the top clubs, you know, the Bradfords and the St. Helenses and the Wiggins and the, and the Leeds, etc., that they can come back and they can deliver and provide something different, a fresh coaching face, some fresh ideas with the clipboard off the field. It also depends on exactly what sort of team and environment they're walking into. Certainly you've seen coaches come back from Super League who put their hand up and said, yes, I'm ready to try an NRL gig, and they have just failed miserably because they just haven't been able to take to the NRL. Similar to some of the players who we've seen succeed in the Super League over the years. They're just not built for the NRL. They're more built for a faster-style game. I wouldn't quite say touch football, but let's face it, the Super League is a far more attacking game traditionally than what the NRL has been. I think Justin Holbrook was the coach for the time. I think they almost got it right with Garth Brennan. They had the right idea that they needed a coach that could 
empathise with younger players and do a bit of developing rather than coach at that really elite standard so far. I just think that Garth Brennan might have been a little bit too hard on the taskmaster side of things, whereas Dustin Holbrook knew that they needed a bit more tactical work behind them, a bit more mouth in the halves rather than a bit more effort. And I think that's exactly where they've been able to benefit from Justin Holbrook's coaching. We all owe a debt of thanks, or all in rugby league at the NRL level, owe a debt of thanks and gratitude to the New Zealand Warriors for sacrificing above and beyond the call of duty in 2020. All it would have taken was a couple more or maybe half a dozen more New Zealand Warriors players to get up and go home and the entire NRL season could have very well collapsed with the Warriors pulling out uh, at that critical stage in the middle of the coronavirus uh, pandemic when the curtain was down around us all. But not only did they stay and make up the numbers, they did a heck of a lot more than that in finishing 10th on 16 competition points. You could almost say that with a slice of luck in two or three games, they could have even made the top eight. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think they got ripped off in at least three games. You give them the three wins that they went without as a result of some highly questionable refereeing decisions. That puts them beyond Cronulla into the top eight. And that would have been an interesting game, Canberra versus New Zealand in week one of the finals. The Warriors, I think, learnt a cultural lesson this year. And I'm not talking about Maori culture versus Australian culture. I think they, they learnt about the bro culture and exactly what it takes from some of the Australian-based players to win. Because it's one thing for a New Zealand player to take that culture with them to the New Zealand Warriors when there's a New Zealander as coach. You've seen when the New Zealand Warriors, uh, John Money aside as their foundation coach, because let's give him a pass, he was the foundation coach. When teams come in, they traditionally struggle. But when the Warriors had their best success, has been with an Australian coach. They had it with Daniel Anderson. They had it with Ivan Cleary. That's when they made their grand finals. When they've had New Zealanders coaching them, they've tended to struggle. Andrew McFadden aside, Australian coaches tend to have more success with the New Zealand Warriors. Nathan Brown going in there, he doesn't stand for that bro culture, part of why the Newcastle Knights ended up moving him on, because Talon Ponga and the like weren't taking too well to him. Now that they've learnt what sort of coaching style they need, now the New Zealand Warriors will be able to move on from that bro culture. And I think the lone players did them a world of good, not necessarily from their on-field performances, but bringing that cultural lesson to the Warriors. I think their top eight team, for certain, is Nathan Brown can get that culture as a permanent change rather than just temporary change that they had this year. That's going to be the, the key, though. I mean, we don't know what sort of coronavirus mm. conditions will be facing us when we start the 2021 season. Will the borders be opened up but across the, the both sides of the Tasman? Uh, will we have another wave? Will New Zealand be asked to... Uh, go into camp for five and a half or six months of the season because having to do that certainly contributed to that mateship, to that change of culture. And whether they can replicate that under normal New Zealand conditions remains to be seen. They too have uh, cleaned out the broom and have got rid of a number of players who came off contract. A lot, a lot of them fringe players. Jared Beal, Lachlan Burr, Patrick Herbert, Adam Kieran, Tane Milne, Isaiah Papali, Nathaniel Roach and Liavaha Pulu. Uh, alongside Adam Blair retiring from Rugby League after a colourful but storied career. 
Let's have a look then at the West Tigers, who didn't finish their traditional ninth place this year. They finished in 11th place as one of three teams with only seven wins for the season. And as someone with the Tigers very close at heart, uh, Keith, they too have uh, an interesting path ahead of them under coach Michael Maguire. They've already shown Benji Marshall the door. Chris McQueen has also left the club. Uh, Oliver Clark, Matt Eisenhuth, Robert Jennings, Dylan Smith and Elijah Taylor have also gone as Coach Maguire tries to find the list that he wants to take them forward. And that's the key, is that cleaning so many players out, those guys are generally on lesser money. It's the big name, it's the big money players, Russell Packers, Josh Reynolds, Moses M. Byers of the world, who really have to deliver because they are on 800000 each or something like that, and they're not getting moved on at the moment. Once those guys move on, that's when Michael Maguire will have the money to move around the salary cap and bring in some big names. I think that the West Tigers go backwards next season simply because the playing stock isn't there. And it's a salary cap issue, simple as that. And Michael Maguire then has to go out and make sure that he invests in the right players for his style. I have no doubt that he will because there were players there certainly complaining during the season about the fact that, oh, training's too hard and all this sort of thing. And finally, the West Tigers board has gone to, have gone to the players and said, well, if you don't like it, there's the door and don't let it hit you on the backside on the way out, which is something that is so overdue and so welcome. And I am so encouraged by that that Michael Maguire signed on for another two years. I don't think next year is going to be a good year. I think going backwards again. But once that salary cap pressure starts to ease, Michael Maguire can bring in the players that he wants. I think it's all systems go from there. Well... He's got to get through those two years. As we have found out elsewhere, coaches don't necessarily uh, see out their contracts. The second of the three teams that finished on 14 points also got rid of a coach during this season, the St George Illawarra Dragons, uh, when Paul McGregor was shown the door eventually at the back end of the season. Anthony Griffin, alongside the likes of Matthew Elliott, come to the club next year, but for mine... The one overriding issue will finally come to a head eventually during this off-season. Jack DeBellin's uh, trial before the courts on the charges that he faces commenced the week that this episode of Splinters was being put to air. Eventually, once that is resolved, one way or the other, I think the club can move on. The club can move on. I think the other problem they have to figure out is, is Ben Hunt a 7 or a 9? Once they figure that out, and Anthony Griffin has a bit of a history with Ben Hunt. He knows how Ben Hunt thinks. So I think Anthony Griffin will be able to get the best out of Ben Hunt and make sure that he really does perform at his best. I think that's what they have to figure out. DeBellin and Ben Hunt, once they figure those questions out, they can move forward. Until then, they're basically a work in progress to be determined. And I think it's going to be another long year next year. Sorry, Tony. I hear you and I agree with you until Jack DeBellin's uh, trial is sorted out one way or the other. The last of the three teams that finished on 14 points in that bottom section of the table, the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles. And in developments again, as this episode was going to air, Dylan Walker has once again found himself in trouble off the field with a couple of assault charges in the week that this episode was uh, being put to air at a pizza parlour in Manly Warringah. Uh, 
some people just can't help themselves, I'm afraid, but that's another story for another day. Uh, Danny Levi, Brendan Elliott and Tony Williams have been moved on. Tony Williams will probably retire. Albert Hopawate remains unsigned. Corey Riddell has gone to the Bulldogs. Joel Thompson has left the club uh, to go to the UK Super League. But uh, Cade Cust and Moses Sulai have always have both re-signed. But for mine, they've got to get someone like Tom Trebojevic in cotton wool and keep him there over the summer months, particularly after State of Origin is over. I'd be asking questions of the Manly medical staff because a lot of the injuries that they suffered weren't necessarily injuries that are just terrible luck, such as doing um, bone fractures and that sort of thing. A lot of them were tissue injuries. The medical staff have a lot to answer for at Manly at the moment. I wouldn't be surprised if Des has a bit of a clean-out of the medical team over the off-season. He, he must have thought at some stages of the season that he crossed paths with a black cat walking under a ladder on Friday the 13th while breaking a mirror or something like that. They had no injury luck whatsoever. They needed something to go their way. It never did. I think Des Hasler's got questions for the medical staff, and if they're going to be a contender next year, they need to stay fit, and that comes down to the physios. Let's have a look at the bottom three sides quickly as time moves on in this episode of Splinters. And two of the bottom three clubs for the first time, Queensland-based teams. Starting with the 14th-placed North Queensland Cowboys who finished the season with only the five wins. John Asiata is departing the club at the end of the season. Ruben Cotter has signed a two-year extension. But it's all going to be about how Michael Morgan, for mine, gets on the field and stays there if they're going to go anywhere in 2021. I did mention this during the season as well, and Brad Fittler picked up on it towards the back end of the year, is that Michael Morgan has been misused by the Cowboys so much. They have to figure out exactly what his role is within that team, whether he's a centre, whether he's a halfback, whether he plays a supporting role for somebody else. Because he's just all over the place. They don't know how to use him at the moment. Once they figure out how to use Michael Morgan then they can figure out how to properly rebuild. Letting John Asiata go, I have no idea what they were thinking there. I think West Tigers would be absolutely nuts not to put in a bid for John Asiata. I think any club would be nuts not to put in a bid for John Asiata. I think he would be a wonderful asset for any club out there. But once they can figure out what they're going to do with Michael Morgan, that's when the rebuild genuinely starts. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them struggle again next year while Todd Payton figures out what he has in Michael Morgan. And then in 2022, you might see the Cowboys on the rise again. But next year, I expect more of the same. Canterbury-Bankstown finished uh, second from last on equal number of wins with the Wooden Spooner Brisbane Broncos. They've wasted no time on and off the field to make movements. Clean out at board level eventually saw uh, three prominent board members led by Chairwoman Anderson uh, resign. Trent Barrett has been signed as coach. And he's been quick to go into the player market to bring in Kyle Flanagan as first recruit number one. They certainly want to move ahead off that uh, bottom of the ladder position in 2021. Can they do that, though? They can. And it's basically down to the fact that they've now got players who know how to score points in Chotrich. They've got a halfback in Kyle Flanagan. They can finally do something with the football. At stages during 2020, Canterbury looked like their, their definition of attack was something that was stuck in a wall. They had no ability to do anything with the football. Now that they've got someone who knows how to play an attacking style, 
with a dangerous winger on the outside, with a little bit of go forward in the middle as well. There was never any question about the effort. It was all about the execution and the skill and the ability, and they had none this year, Canterbury. Now that they have something, they're not a top eight team, but they're going to be pushing a lot of teams, and I think they'll be in contention until about a month out from finals next season. And then they'll finish 9-12, to 12, which may not be a bad result given the depths and where they are. Kieran Foran, so injury-prone. He's left the club. He's now gone to Manly to join Daly, Cherry Evans and the halves there. I'd say Canterbury have got the better end of that deal. Oh, by far. There's no question about that. Kieran Foran, uh, when, when you try and set up a game plan around a player who is injured that often, you just start losing ground on your competitors and you can't play that same style of game, particularly because Kieran Foran is such a physical player by his, by his standards. So the fact that Kieran Foran will not be there, I think is a good thing for Canterbury because they will be able to build without him. Not saying that Kieran Foran's a bad player, he just doesn't stay on the field enough. He is the focal point of, or he was the focal point of Canterbury. Now that he's going to play a supporting role at Manly, he'll be much better suited and Canterbury will be much better off being able to build around a player that can stay on the field. Let's have a look at the Brisbane Broncos. Last, but certainly by no means least. Having hogged so much of the headlines on and off the field for various reasons, Anthony Seabold's departure, the social media trolling, the signing of Kevin Walters, the departure of Fafita, uh, the departure of one or two others. Uh, but players have taken up options. Anthony Milford, Corey Oates have taken up the option for next year. Herbie Farnworth has re-signed. Uh, Darius Boyd has retired. Jake Turpin will probably sign for 2021 and 2022, given he has a two-year option. So they're virtually going to have very much the same side, minus David Fafita, that were quite awful in 2020. So Kevin Walters is going to have a lot of work to do to try and weave some of his state-of-origin magic on this young, inexperienced, and dare I say it, poor Broncos outfit. Either Kevin Walters is going to be the shrewdest signing in Brisbane history, or he's going to be the most disastrous signing in Brisbane history. You can't sign a guy to coach a club team based on their performance in state-of-origin. It's just not going to work. What they need is a club coach who can really build something from scratch, which is what Paul Green did. I think Paul Green is is extremely unlucky not to be coaching the Broncos. And I think the board just caves into the old boys' pressure in the end. Kevin Walters' club record is, well, it, it, it is not good. And I think that's being generous to Kevin. They are going to struggle, Brisbane. I think if they're trying to rebuild a culture, then okay, that's fair enough. Give Kevin Walters three years, try and rebuild a culture and then rebuild a playing roster because I don't think Kevin Walters as a club coach is going to even be close to what the Broncos need. Do they win the wooden spoon again next year? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. I think a bit of a culture change might get them there, but they're certainly not getting out of the bottom four. Well, that would be bad news for television broadcasters who rely so much on Brisbane Broncos games rating well to rake in television dollars. The one question I have about the Brisbane Broncos, which not many people have touched on, is the fact that they are 61% owned by News Limited, the former owners of the game, much to the game's detriment. They've always been recognised, the Broncos, as Lachlan Murdoch's team. Will Lachlan Murdoch, sitting in his palace in Los Angeles, watching the Broncos perhaps slump to another wooden spoon, 
sit back or will he step in at some stage as only a Murdoch family member can and start wreaking havoc? That's the question I ask with the Broncos going forward. And if that happens, then look out. I think he starts starts wreaking havoc with the board at some point, but it's not. He's going to make very clear that it will be from a boardroom perspective. It's got nothing to do with the on-field performance. Those people are entitled to do what they want, and they can stay there. And he'll sort out the business aspect of things off the field. Uh, I think that's the only way he can get around it is to make sure that he makes clear that this is a business decision rather than anything else. All right then. Time has wrapped up. The referee has blown full-time on this remarkable National Rugby League season and it's also blown full-time on this episode of Splinters. Thank you so much, Keith Topolsky. So much to get through. We got through it in the allotted time. We look forward to speaking with you again sometime soon. Enjoy your summer. Very much looking forward to it. That's Keith Topolsky, the best unpaid analyst of the game of rugby league in Australia. That wraps up another edition of Splinters for another Tuesday night. Join us again at the same time next week for another edition. Until then, my name is Tony Dosen, the Sultan. From this episode of Splinters, it's goodbye. Goodbye.